Welcome to Essential Conversations. I'm your host, Rebecca Mears, with my co-host, Luca Halex. And this week joining us in studio is somebody I have been waiting to get in the hot seat for quite a long time. It is Rhiannon Bennett. Welcome, Rhiannon. Hi. <laughs> I'm make you feel all shy right at the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> so Rhiannon is a partner with somebody that I grew up with in Northern Ontario. So we've got this quite close connection. And... I have been so impressed with who Rhiannon is, what she's being in the world. I've just been so excited to give her some time in front of our mic here in the studio. And we've got her here. It was a busy yeah. summer. You were slammed from all sides for sure. I know we tried to get you in here earlier, but uh, all of a sudden, here's the window. I think busy is a bit of an understatement, but yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's one way to describe yeah, it. Yeah, Absolutely. So for everybody who is listening right now, um, you've given yourself, I love the title that you chose for yourself. In our forum, when we send it out to our guests that we're going to have on, we don't ask them what their business title is or, you know, what letters they have after their name. We say, what is a title you wish to give yourself? And we do that on purpose because we like to know what people consider themselves rather than just labels that the outside world has put on them. And you said for yourself that you are a slayer of systems. And when I read that, I said, yeah! <laughs> <laughs> edge-dwelly, <Yes>. very edge-dwelly. <laughs> what, what was pushing you to say that? Sure, but, but first and foremost, I just, um, uh, OCM and CIA at Eichnesqualans Equisnala, uh, I just want to recognize that we're gathered today on the occupied and unceded territory of Maya occupied and unceded territory, shared territory with Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh. So, thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. So, that's a little bit of slaying the system there. So, yes. it's just. Uh, <laughs> Just I really just sort of identify these days as just trying to get into the systems and just slay through the oppression and slay through the bureaucracy and the red tape. And really, there's so many systems that we still interact with on a daily basis that still cause so much harm for people. And it's really hard to to move forward as a society when our systems are still harming people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When did you first... When did you first have awareness you were engaging in that way or this was something that was for you, for your hands to do? That's a very good question. Mm. So I think I've always been really, really outspoken and, (laughs) you know, standing. I've always been uh, looking out for for injustice. Like injustice has always offended me to the core. Like I get a real visceral feeling in my gut when I see an injustice happening in front of me. You know, as as even like little when I was growing up and through high school, like just always um, very aware of of that of of that, and it's not one of my core values. And just it's really always been a champion of equity and making sure people are being treated fairly. Mm-hmm. And then we had we sort of lived through the eighties, where there was the eighties were weird, <laughs> where it was just sort of like this, where everything was sort of like 
all I mean, maybe it was all the bright colors that just distracted everybody from all of the other nonsense the that we're still <laughs> going colors, on. Yeah. The neon. The neon. Yeah. Yeah. It's like everything's the, fine. The big we, hair. We don't have any more racism. Uh, Everybody's equal. We have a PC culture mm-hmm. where we're going to all be politically correct. And then we sort of lived in that for, for like the 80s and then sort of like the 90s came and then there was sort of like this grunge and there's this real another like cultural shift that really happened in the 80s that sort of like but like wait a minute sorry in the 90s that was like wait a minute but things still aren't okay right Mm -hmm. let's look in the corners here let's Mm -hmm. pull back a little bit the curtain and see what's going on beyond the shining stuff yes Mm -hmm. so so much fluff in the 80s and then just really that that real having been a teenager through the 90s you know that that music and that sort of era of your your teenage years are those really those formative things for you right they leave a real lasting imprint on who you are and and I grew up, you know, listening to the grunge scene and the Pearl Jam and Stone Temple Pilots and, you know, just that sort of, uh, Gen X, Gen X, but I'm not a Gen X. I'm sort of that that mini micro um, generation. I can't remember what they call us now. Is it Zennials? Zen- yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm lost with all the different generations. Yeah, that they, so yeah. we were talking about this the other day. That, that, that came after me, so right. I don't even know where the where the delineation is. Yeah, and so so you know, I was just always aware of of that injustice and and always mm-hmm. been ch- championing equity. And then as I grew and started working professionally, just sort of um, noticing that all of my good work was always impeded by some poor policy or some ridiculous funding cut or slash or. And then just just that was sort of became more and more of a motivator. It's like, well, I'm just going to be the policymaker, and I'm going to be the one who decides right. where the funding goes. So that's what I the direction that I've been been headed on. Yeah, I will never ever forget when the BC Liberals came into power and they started ripping up contracts and slashing subsidies. I was running an out of school care program, and we had to give this notice out to all of our parents, letting them know that their subsidy was gone. And that their childcare fees were being hiked hugely. And there was like maybe a month's notice. Oh my gosh. Like wow. it wasn't a lot of notice yeah. for single moms and hardworking families to, to ha- suddenly have this huge expense on their, on their bill. And nobody's got that kind of money sitting yeah. in the back pocket. So yeah. that was a real motivator for me. Like I just always like, that was not a, that was not a fun day at work when I had to do that. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. Um, um, where you're stepping into, you're seeing the need, you're stepping in to reach the need, but then you're realizing that though your desire, your willingness to show up and do the work, your willingness to make an impact, to just get get down there in, I want to call it in the dirt. It's not the dirt, but you know what I'm saying, like in where the work is. But you keep getting your arms tied behind your back because Very someone so. else with, yes. you know, the purse strings or whatever is just like, yeah, no, we're putting our energy elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And you've taken that step back to just be like, no, OK, you know what? Fine. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to step up here. <laughs> Move over. Mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> I love it. Mm-hmm. And you, you made some history, didn't you? I've, I've made history a few times. Uh, but I want to <laughs> tell me that the time you're making history. So... In uh, 2014, I was the first Indigenous woman elected to the Delta Board of Education, uh, squeaked in, beating out one of my running mates by seven votes. Oof, and wow. it was um, it was an interesting election and having just come through the civic election and not being victorious this time, just sort of doing a little bit of that election postmortem and just sort of seeing the very different 
um, environments that we were campaigning in. So last time uh, Delta's mayor was acclaimed, so there was no one running for mayor. So that made it a lot less interesting. And then sort of what was going on with the councillors didn't seem to be getting a lot of traction in the community. People didn't really seem to care too much about it without the mayor being on the ballot. So the school board got all this attention. We had we had like the most um, all candidates meetings in probably recent history. We had four. So I was on the front page of the local papers like two or three times through the election period. I uh, had the editor, one of the papers wrote an op-ed about some of the things we were campaigning on. So we got, wow. a, we got a lot of attention mm-hmm. um, through that. And then this time uh, there was, was there six people running for mayor and three, three big contenders running for mayor. And there was a lot more money that we were up against. And one of the mayoral candidates was running a full slate of councillors and four and, and a takeover of the school board. So they had a way bigger campaign machine that we than we were prepared to come up against. And it, this uh, election was clearly decided by money, power and privilege. Mm. And it was almost regressive. It's so it aggressive. aggressive. It was so aggressive. Yeah. Like it, it was. It really makes me so sad when I look at the results. Like besides, like the personal pain of now not being able to continue the work that I was so passionate about, and and about the, more the personal pain about Indigenous voices again not yeah. being represented in, in policy rooms where they're making tons of policies about us. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, they're yeah, affecting no you. But the, there was on the, so that's sort of putting myself aside. There was another slate where there was um, a white woman, a white man, and a and a man of color were running together with a couple of with three councillors and a mayoral candidate. The two white school trustees topped the polls, came in number one and two, and the brown candidate didn't make it past the line. Wow, mm-hmm. it was pretty bad. You There's know, so, it it makes. There's so much work that still needs to be done. It is. And then there was another, um, on another ticket, there was another, um, yeah, it's just the the racism was just so apparent in the results of this election. And it was really, I don't want to say it was disheartening. Um, It's just sad. Mm -hmm. And then uh, in the sort of the post-election aftermath, just sort of like trying to poke back at it going, hey, like this stuff's going on. And then people are like, no, that policy isn't racist. Right. So the the new the mayor elect wants to um, impose a policy in in the community. So Delta is kind of interesting, right? So uh, Tawasan First Nation at one point was under Delta's jurisdiction, whatever, as they was in the municipality of Delta mm-hmm. uh, until they signed their treaty in 2017, and then they're free from the Indian Act. They are their own. They're on equal footing as a municipality, the province, and the federal government in their abilities to write and pass laws. So there's this little this little community there that they're trying their hardest to um, make their community thrive in this modern world. You know, after having survived the genocide that was imposed upon us, having all of their um, uh, governance and econo- um, economic systems were all outlawed, and mm-hmm. now here they are trying to participate in the systems that are here. And to hear which are rigged against which are yes participation, but to hear people complain about um, the stuff and choices that Tawasan First Nation is making for their community is the it's appalling, and it um, so now the mayor elect wants to impose a policy where anyone accessing um, Delta Parks and Recreation facilities uh, priority goes to residents of Delta First. Um, including extending a window for registration for like swim lessons and skating lessons and sort of all those fun 
community cultural programs, putting a, a barrier for uh, people living on Tawasan lands. Uh, and then I think he was even um, mentioning about a, a two-tiered payment system as well. So people from outside of Delta having a separate uh, fee than people within Delta. And I can't think of any municipality. Of them, right? Yes. So we, you know, a little bit of community Facebook chatter about that. And, and of course, I pop into the comment section going, this policy sounds like it's rooted in racism and white supremacy. Right. And those are two words that Canadians really don't have the capacity to hear. No. <clears throat> and it's, it's, really, um, it's really fascinating watching Canadians sort of shut down when you point out racist things and things and ideologies that are, are rooted in white supremacy. Um, because Canadians are like, oh, but I'm... We I'm, like to think that we're not those things. That's right? right. And it's distressing to find out that you are. And then the question is, what are you going to do about that's it? That's right. Right. So you know, I, I talk a lot about what I'm trying to coin the term Canadian racism, where ra- Canadians understand that you can't say like the N-word and you, you can't say things about Jewish people and you can't... You can't do a lot of things. So Canadians understand that. But when it comes to Indigenous things, there's a lot that gets a pass. A lot of awful things that people will say about Indigenous people that get a pass. And it's that being racist towards um, Indigenous people is actually woven right into the fabric of Canadian culture. And that's the whole thing about culture, right? Is that culture are things that you think and you believe and you do without without conscious thought, Right, that's the whole point of it's culture, just right? The way it it's is, just the way right? it is. Yeah. Where you, which mm-hmm. side of the sidewalk you walk on, where you put this in your house, or like, there's so many things that are dictated by culture um, that you don't, you just do, yeah. and that includes being racist towards Indigenous people. Yeah, and it's uh, there's lots of um, uh, conversations that I'm a part of where Indigenous, Black, and people of color sort of are coming together to sort of to try and address this and finding ways of of getting uh, white Canadians to to hear and to see and we haven't quite figured out how to have those conversations yet and it's so hard because that burden of responsibility should not be on your shoulders that's right no well and and first contact so um, that's a good thing to share out to your listeners if they Mm. haven't had an opportunity to watch first contact that apn did Um, is I, a is a great example. Did you get to see it? I have. I don't have cable, so I don't really watch. Most it was of the up shows on their on their website. Oh, was it? Okay, yeah. I'll check it out. I yeah. have been noticing a variety of comments yes. from people of First Nations background yes. on it. Some people who are really like really unimpressed, and then others who are like, "Hey, hey, check this out! Like, this is the thing." I'd love to hear more about so, your perspective yeah. on it. I'm I'm all like, check it out. But think about it. So yeah, so, exactly. So it's think a, it's a about conversation starter so, right now. So think about what those indigenous people did. Mm-hmm. So just like the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, is all the work is all being done on us. So we have mm-hmm. to take white people by the hand and go. This is actually what your ancestors did when this country was formed. So like mm-hmm. we have to do all of that heavy lifting, and the burden always falls to us mm-hmm. to go. Do you know that it wasn't okay just to come and give <laughs> land away that wasn't yours? <laughs> Did, did you know that BC is actually an illegal occupation of stolen land? Still. Still now. today? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but Canadians don't like hearing that. No. They have this, they've been spoon fed so much propaganda and such a whitewashed history um, that they, they really don't like hearing about how this country was really formed. And I've, I, I saw something recently that I think gives also a, re- a, a really good window into the psychology of people and, and our white people and our resistance to hearing this, being able to hear it and then move beyond into the taking it 
to examine it rather than just getting into defense. And it was somebody who was explaining how racism as a term has come to like reflect like people we, we, we think about it in this way, not that this is what it means, but it's like we think of it as being individually based mm-hmm. um, where you are aware yes. and you're trying to hurt someone yes. mm-hmm. and you're trying to put them down. That's right. And so mm-hmm. if you hear, you know, that was racist, if somebody says that to me and I'm thinking, well, that means that I personally was trying. They think this is a, they think this about me, and of course I'm going to go into a defensive position about that. But that's not what racism is. That's right. Racism is the systemic, systemic. thing that we're, yes. I'm benefiting from. Yes. And to I mean, yes, I am also continuing it insofar if if I am not consciously engaging with dismantling it. So just like I'm passing on any culture of society in this moment, if, you know, whatever I inherited from my parents, Mm -hmm. you know, the ways that I do things, the way I cook my meat, you know, whatever, (laughs) how do I buy things in the grocery store? It's as, it's, it is as innocuous as that, but it's not innocuous. It's Mm -hmm. venomous. And we are continuing it as much as we are not just looking at it in some ways, like dispassionately, we just got to be able to engage with this as (laughs) it's not about me. I mean, it is about me, but it's about, the thing that I'm passing on, but it's it's really at this at this point for us to get to the next to get through this next sort of civil rights movement era. Kind of, I don't even really know what to call what we're going through right now, but mm-hmm. this this reconciliation, decolonization, truth, what truth era we're in right now is is it is not enough for the average person not to be a racist anymore. Like <laughs> like people just can't go. But I'm not a racist. Yeah. Is that you have to actively be anti-racist. Mm-hmm. And those are ones one's passive and just continues right. to keep the status quo, mm-hmm. and one is really pushing to make sure that those social changes and those societal changes are, are happening. Mm-hmm. And a phrase that I've often heard from peers, white peers of mine, um, I'm colorblind. You know, I don't oh. I don't pay attention to this. This is not something I I see. It's not. I'm not differentiating. I'm engaging with all as equal. And I understand this is, it's a complete cop-out statement of the place of, I don't have to think about it. That's right. Right? I don't, I'm not confronted. I'm not confronted with my color, with my heritage every day. It's, I'm not being actively oppressed by it. Therefore, sure, I have the luxury of not thinking about it. But that's actually proving the point. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. So as a slayer of systems... From the time you were little to now and into the future, this is you. What, where do you see the growth point right now? Like, where's the pressure point where you want most of the energy to be put, most of the attention to be put? I, th- I think where we need to be focusing a lot of that attention is, is really getting people to understand their, their own personal privilege. So all of us have some form of privilege. And I think too often people are, have associated privilege with, like, with white privilege. And they're like, mm-hmm. oh, white privilege isn't a thing. I was like, okay, privilege is so much more than just that. So, and, and you know, I'm embarrassed again that I, I've made a personal commitment to myself to introduce myself with my pronouns. Uh, because I firmly believe in using my privilege as a cisgendered heterosexual woman uh, to use my pronouns of she and her and hers to normalize that mm. for people who aren't cisgendered, um, they're normal too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it, it, that's, that's a form so of... So then they're not abnormal by introducing it correct. into the conversation. Correct. We've made it for everybody. Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
So really just trying to get everybody to be aware of their privilege. And one of my my parting emails to the Delta District's Equity Scan Committee was a challenge for all of them to identify their own privilege and to use their privilege to to remove those barriers in the system that give them the privilege. Because they didn't earn that privilege, right? We don't earn our privilege, so it's not ours to keep. And I think people who like to keep their privilege... You know, that's a bit of a problem. But it is ours to share. Yes. Right? And so that we can step into as a positive thing that we can do without too much harm to ourselves, right? It's like we can do that. There, there is no harm in removing your privilege. Exactly. And I think that's yeah. something that people aren't always aware of as well is that... That, that removing it and and or sharing it all around so everybody has that's it. That's right. Which is a form of removing it, I that's, guess. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, privilege doesn't mean that you were given things. You know, you can have, you can tick off so many boxes of having so many different forms of privilege and, and consider yourself having had a tough, a tough life and not having very many things. But privilege isn't about things. It can be your health. It can be your health. You know, it, it can be, it's about the system and the society that we walk through. So it's about, are the people in power? Do they look like you? Do they sound like you? Do they celebrate the same holidays that you do? It's, it's so much more than just the, the how much money is in your bank account. No, yeah. I mean, that's really oh, yeah. just such a small, a small, tiny little piece of what privilege is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and we're much more likely to identify where we feel we've been victimized than where we feel we have privilege. Mm-hmm. And if we experience hard times and oppression, which... Any person can and will at different points. Like, you know, that saying, everybody's got a story that will break your heart. It's not about life is easy, as but, you but, said. But hard time and oppression are two different things, though. Yes. yes that's yeah, right. yeah, you're right. Thank right? you for pointing it's that like out. That, yeah. They're two very different things. Yeah. So having a hard time is, is having a hard time. But oppression is someone actively suppressing yeah. uh, suppressing you, like saying yeah. that yeah. you must, like what's going on down the States, you know, is so oppressive oh, with yeah. happening to trans people down the States. and. You don't want to spend... And the votes being taken away from great swaths of First Nations yes. and black folk down, yes. and, you know? Oh. So I, I don't want to spend too much time talking about yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> we'll keep our eyes here where we are. Yeah. We have enough to work on Yeah, here. yeah, yeah. And, that, and that's been my... I've had the, the honour of um, doing the opening address at the last two women's marches in Vancouver um, with my daughter, which was really cool for her to be up there in front of all those people, sort of training the next generation. But that was my my message to all of them is that all of these women, and predominantly white women, were outraged and gathered to march in response to Trump. And I'm like, how how quickly they all forgot about all of the harm and awful things that Harper was doing here. Mm-hmm. So where was where was the mass organization and where was all of that mass on the streets for those for those terrible things that that Harper was doing? He gutted the the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, yeah. you know, Bill C-51 yeah. is still illegal, is, is still is still law. You know, the and, and Trudeau, um, Harper 2.0, has no. done nothing no. to remove that from the books. It's just appalling. Mm-hmm. So there's all this stuff going on here, and so many Canadians are distracted by what's going on right. down the States. And, and to me that, and so many people are inspired by what's going on down the States. And you know, I've been since I was since I was little. Like I remember being in elementary school, watching you know the news and sort of what was happening down the states, and being aware of what was happening here, like our movies and our music, and 
and realizing that influence of American culture into Canadian culture. And I remember being like still in elementary school saying things like, we should build a wall, we should close those gates and we should detox from the United States for 10 years. And, and you know, there's too much influence coming from other people used to look at me like I was, didn't know what I was talking about. And, and I'm like, well, here we are now we're fighting for, to stop private privatization of um, our medical system uh, the BC Liberals had a war on public education unchecked for like 16 years and all of those stuff is just so remnant of stuff that's of stuff that's seeping over the border from the states and it's I just look at what goes on down there and I'm like why would we want any of that up here mm-hmm. like, no right. thank you we have to work at what is present here so that we don't end up with that and so we can I, I, I've actually tweeted out what you just said there about we're being distracted we're not taking into hand the matters here yes um, anybody who would like to connect in I've also tweeted out a picture of you and your daughter at oh, speaking nice. at the Women's March and also a picture of you when you were being sworn in yes in uh, Delta mm-hmm. anybody who would like to follow along as well as to some of the links that, um, or references that Rhiannon is making during the show you can do so um, by following us on Twitter at EssentialConv that's spelled Essence T-I-A-L-C-O-N-V um, Rhiannon, you've brought two songs to listen to today. Would you like to pick which one you'd like to listen to first? Sure, we'll throw up Pearl Jam first. Okay. Do you want to tell us before or after why you've picked the song? I can do it now. Yeah. So Pearl Jam holds a, a little special place in my heart as um, you know they entered the music scene sort of at a very influential point in my life. And I've just always been inspired by the political action that they take, how they use their privilege um, to try and have conversations and to lift people up and their music has always been you know very politically charged and you know they took Ticketmaster to court and cancelled an entire tour because their fans weren't being treated fairly their concert their tickets for their shows are always accessible they they treat their fan clubs excessively well and their music just always just gets it's my it's my go-to if I'm having a bad I'm having a bad time and I just like Pearl Jam is just like that sweater for your soul just uh-huh. a big hug for your like soul awesome. yeah. alright we're going to listen to Pearl Jam release and then we will return into the studio with Rhiannon Bennett in just a few minutes
We respectfully acknowledge that we broadcast on unceded ancestral territory of the Coast Salish peoples, the Squamish, the Musqueam, and the Tsleil-Waututh. We are actually honored today uh, to have a band member from the Musqueam um, Nation here with us today, Rhiannon Bennett, who is a slayer of systems, and she's giving us details about her plans <laughs> and how she's been at, at work slaying. We just listened to Pearl Jam Release, which was her first song request for today, and um, I just want to take a time, a moment here, Rhiannon, if it's okay with you to read through some of the things that you shared with me in your, in your bio about things that you've been active in. So Rhiannon um, has spent 20 years working with children, youth, and families in roles like dance teacher, soccer coach, youth worker, youth program coordinator, Aboriginal community developer, and Aboriginal education and enhancement support worker. And then, of course, the work that you were doing into um, the system itself, like trying to change the system and beyond. Tell me what you were at work there. What's the the common thread? What are you, what was create? What were you creating? So the the common thread is is probably this own personal journey of decolonization and cultural revitalization that I've been on. So my my family. So I grew up in Ladner, um, and there was a village near sort of where I grew up from, and my mother's. Um, grandparents, so they're both Hunkaminam speaking people. Uh, her grandfather was from from Ladner. Um, he was from, I believe, he's got some ties to Lamalchi, and so sort of really from the the Gulf Islands, from the mouth of the river. Um, that's where he was from. And then my late great grandmother um, was uh, Emma Wilson, and her maiden name was Sparrow from Musqueam. She came right from the our main village um, out by UBC. And, you know, they, they were both Hunkamidum-speaking people, uh, but none of their children, so my, grand, my late grandfather and his siblings, like none of them spoke any Hunkamidum. And we sort of um, grew up, you know, with that, dis- that disconnect between our cultures. So there was something happened um, at one of the residential schools, and someone went and gathered up all the children and was like, you're not going anymore. Um, we're not, we're, they disenfranchised um, you know, my late great grandfather was owned, owned his own home, owned his own boat, and was able to get the white man's wage for his fishing. So there was, you know, some intent that went into those decisions to make a better opportunities for our family. Um, but that came at the expense of our connection to our to our culture, well, parts of our culture. Right. So specifically, our our connection to our language and our connection to our big house practices. Um, but I've sort of learned over the years that we have a real wide depth of cultural knowledge and like our family ties and our our hunting and our fishing practices and like all of that was still really strong in our family. Mm. But it was that specific, you know, attack on our on our language and those those cultural practices that were outlawed. And and those can't really be understated, the impact that those have mm-hmm. in terms of disconnecting. No, like my 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 aunt or my mom, one of them is, you know, I heard them refer to themselves as sort of like an empty vessel. Oh, so yeah. just sort of like that, like we know that this is, don't quote that one out though. Okay. <laughs> that was, um, we know who that we are, but that, that just, dis- that disconnect was really sort of hard to overcome. And my family has worked so hard at becoming more connected with our Musqueam community. You know, I've gone and studied three years through UBC of Hunkaminam, uh, my cousin Jordan has gone on 
Uh, he's in New York right now doing the Fancy Pants uh, program. Um, he's in anthropology. He's done museum uh, curator work, and he's done incredible work for preserving um, cultural aspects. And he was part of the Tessnam City Before the City um, exhibit. And just that sort of trying to find those those avenues. And, you know, I think one of the biggest influencers in my, my cultural um, revitalization is my cousin Nathan, uh, my cousin Nathan was adopted into our into our family, and uh, his birth family is from the Yukon. So, his connection to his family home and sort of all that work that he did, sort of to revitalize culture, learning language, and learning um, canoeing. Like canoeing's been the biggest um, vessel for mm-hmm. my cultural mm-hmm. re- revitalization, mm-hmm. and that was that was through him. So his efforts to um, he married into Tawasan First Nation and. He got them a canoe and went on canoe journeys, and then I went started working down there and went with him, and just sort of that having growing that deeper understanding of sort of what that colonization had impact had on my family, and that deeper, you know, I've always sort of had that theory that theory knowledge of of how harmful it's been, but to to have that that deeper understanding. Um, really motivated me to sort of work on slaying the systems. Mm-hmm. It has so much to do with identity, doesn't it? It really does, yes. Like, who who am I? Who I still, are we? I still cry about my personal identity. I'll do it right now. <laughs> like yeah. It's, yeah. You know, it, it, colonization it was a was a direct attack on our on our identities, and it's such a hard thing to really to really explain, but. You know, I, and then there's all sorts of lateral violence within our communities, and sometimes I'm not Musqueam enough because I didn't grow up down there, and you know, it, and it's hard. So it's it's hard to navigate all of this, all of this mess that's left behind for us. And mm-hmm. I I do my best to you know follow our to follow our teachings of being not smart of of one heart and one mind, and making sure that I'm I'm trying to stay humble and making sure that I'm trying to bring people and be helpful and and do work because work needs to be done and stay till it's finished and all those sorts of things. And, but it, that, that attack on, on your identity is just, it's, it's really hard and it's something that I'm trying to make sure it stops at my generation and that my daughter doesn't have to have those struggles about who she is and where mm-hmm. she comes from. You brought as one of your show and tell pictures, um, you in the um, pulling together mm-hmm. journey, and you just referenced canoeing and the canoe journeys as being really key for you. Mm-hmm. Would you like to tell us a little bit more about that? About can- I love talking about canoes. <laughs> <Sure. laughs> that's a beautiful, beautiful it is. canoe. Well, yeah. Too. yeah, it's all right. <laughs> no, it's uh, that's our our Sishki canoe. Um, it's not a it's not a proper Musqueam style canoe and it's made of fiberglass, but nonetheless, it has its own spirit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it certainly is very aware of when there's bad attitudes in the canoe and very aware of when people are not pulling together. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started canoeing, like I said, with my, with my cousin Nathan and it just came so naturally. It just, it just, no one had to, had to really teach me anything. It was just, it, like we've been in the water and on canoes for thousands of years, mm-hmm. just sort of in our in our hearts and souls, and mm-hmm. had the pleasure of um, taking youth from Tawasan on canoe journeys. And every year there was always new people who have never been in a canoe until day one. I'm like, here you go. I'm like, you'll be fine. It's in your blood. It's in your heart and soul. Go. And uh, they did, and they all loved it. And 
I think the, the first journey I went on um, was, you know, the first one's always the most powerful. And I had a, a small group of youth that I took by myself and we had quite the adventure meeting up with the, with the journey. And I had this one youth, David, and uh, he didn't, he didn't want to go, but he wanted to go. So I said, if you can come up with three, three valid actual reasons <laughs> of why you cannot come with me on the journey, I will stop asking and you don't have to come with me. He couldn't do it. <laughs> so I said, you're coming. Great <laughs> challenge. <laughs> and we were getting ready to leave. I was loading up loading up gear on my way to drive around and pick up everybody. And I ran into his, his mom at the band office. And, and she looked at me. She goes, oh, when are you guys leaving? And I'm like, now. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, he better be ready. <laughs> I'm like, this isn't very promising. <laughs> so if we pulled up to pick him up and he came out of his house and just the big saucer eyes Mm. like he was he was terrified he was so nervous um to go and and he was really trying to find him find that reason to stay and he just he couldn't do it and i wouldn't let him i'm like you're coming and we went and he had the most amazing the most amazing time and when we landed on our last stop i I don't even think he had, he had one foot in the water and one foot in the canoe and he gave me like the biggest hug and he's <laughs> like, thank you so much. He said, that was, that's what he needed. That's He says, I can't, he's like, I can't even imagine. And then he's been on a number of journeys since. And as an adult, he's made his own way to join and, and come. And he's, it's, so it's those kind of opportunities that, you know, I, I recognize my privilege of having grown up with both my mom and dad, um, my grandparents in the home, my other grandparents down the road and, mm-hmm. and, relatively free from abuse and violence and that we didn't struggle with addictions in our home and you know it was it was a very privileged upbringing and I'm very aware that not everybody's homes looked like mine did so I really that's sort of like the the motivation between a lot of the youth work that I do is just trying to be that example that things can be another way right like I, I know that your home might look like this I'm like but this is what it could look like, and this is what what you could what you yeah, could have. It's another experience, mm-hmm. right? And so they know people, it's possible. People yeah. only know what they know, right? For sure. So I try mm-hmm. and show them an, a living example of what of what healthy living looks like. Mm-hmm. And I know another few journeys later, I had another group of youth, and and one young gentleman had um, had a much tougher story than than David did, and every, we used to refer to ourselves as a, as a canoe family. And that was a big trigger for him. Like his his idea of family was hurt, pain, and he it wasn't something good. So every right. time we said family, come near, he'd get really angry, and he'd be like, "I don't want to be a part of a family." And family is not a good word. And you know, he and I went for a walk, and I'm like, "You know that this is your opportunity to see a different way of having a family." I said, "This is an opportunity for you to to see something different, and maybe that family doesn't have to be as painful as it's been for you." Mm-hmm. And I'm not quite sure where where he's gotten to now, but I know that that was also a, a profound moment for him to have to have because that. Because you added. made it explicit for him, yes. right? And that might have been just a, a, a nameless fear in the back of his mind that n- he hadn't even been able to make explicit mm-hmm. yet to make a choice. Yes. Yeah. So those those canoeing being out in the water is such incredibly powerful medicine, and just really have been such a, a blessing to be able to do the work that I've been doing and. To to be able to do the work with um, Pulling Together. And, you know, I, I founded um, Musqueam's Pulling Together Canoe Club, and I I worked so hard. Just There was very little 
support Mm. and I just did it. It was practically me strapping the canoe on my back and just grabbing the kids and going. (laughs) Like it was like, which Mm. is is happening. We'll figure it out when (laughs) we get there. So the the first year, so I went and, uh, you know, I'd worked on sort of some canoe canoe revitalization in the community. We did the the All Nations Canoe Gathering. We did a, a poll with Greenpeace and just really trying to get our canoe out on the water. Because it always made me so sad that, you know, canoe journeys were coming through Musqueam Waters and we were never, my community was never out on the water. And one year we, we pulled in and I was in Twasson's canoe, pulling into my village at Musqueam, doing protocol. And most of the people on the beach, I stood up and introduced myself and like blank stares back from the beach and crickets. Like, who is this person that says they're Musqueam talking to us? And then I went through the proper introduction of, of my mom and my grandparents, my great-grandparents. And then as soon as I hit my late great-grandma, you sort of see all the heads starting to mm. nod on the beach going, oh, we, we know who she is. Now we and know where she fits. Now we know. Yeah. And that was a real, that was a huge defining moment for me as well, because standing in Tawasin's canoe, someone else's canoe on my water into my village and my people didn't know who I was, um, was really hard for me. Yeah. You know, it really drove home that sort of disconnect that I had from, from my community. And and I worked so hard to, to change that. I I took a different, and I left Tawasin, went to a different job, and then went back to Tawasin because it provided me an opportunity to go to Musqueam to start learning Hunkaminam. So I'm like, okay, well, now I'm going to go learn Hunkaminam. I'm going to meet people. Mm-hmm. And then there was a respectful relationships training. I'm like, oh, youth work. I'm like, this is up my alley. I'm, I'm like, doing I, it anyway. I'm like, I have a gift yeah. I can give to my community. So I went and I did that. And then the canoeing stuff started. And and then I took it. Well, and then I got a job in Richmond, the school district. And then that was in 2012. And so because I'd started to make some friendships and get connected down there, I got a message one night saying that there's a developer who's uncovered burial grounds and trying to remove the remains. My community's not happy. I'm like, I'm not happy. Yeah. So that was in, in 2012 when our community organized to protect our ancestors at Cessnam. And that I was, remember that. Yeah, we made a bit of noise. It's good. Yeah. I made a bit of noise. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Was this when it you is. were on the bridge? Yes. Because <laughs> I've got that picture pulled up. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. tell, tell that's us why. More. That's why I joined Twitter too. Because <laughs> Christy Clark's admin had blocked me from her Facebook page. So I'm like, oh, it's fine. I'll just start tweeting her then. <laughs> so that was another opportunity where I had I had time. I didn't have any children. I was done work relatively early in the afternoon. So I'm like, I can give my time to my community. And then I got laid off. Then I was off for the summer. So I just like, I, I have time to give. So I'm going to give. And, you know, those values of doing the work until it's done was really driven into me. And it's like, okay, well, I have the ability to come here and to be the spokesperson and to be here every day. So I'm going to do it because because I can. And somebody needs to be here. So we, um, that was quite the summer. We closed down the Arthur Lang Bridge twice. <laughs> um, we went to Victoria. We were at Christy Clark's office twice. And ultimately, we, we won-ish. So after over 170 days, the, the exact number escapes me now because there's a bit of time between then and now, um, the developers... The, the permits were all cancelled and uh, we bought our land back. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so nothing like having to spend your community's own money 
to buy back that's yours in the yeah, first place. Just so that those people those people that were there could be treated with respect and dignity. And that was always my messaging when I when I was there is just that those are those are people who were loved and are loved and are not forgotten. And I was really on top of all of the media and people talking about it because they'd be like, oh, and and they found remains. And I'm like, nope, stop. Uh, they didn't find them. They unearthed them. They desecrated the graves. I'm like, those are appropriate things about what happened. I'm like, finding them implies that nobody knew that they were there and that they were lost and that, oh, look, look yeah. what we found. But it was a well-known, well-documented site. So mm-hmm. there shouldn't have been any surprises. Well, try going and digging up a graveyard inside a church thing yeah. and see what kind of reaction you'd get, right? Well, we haven't through the years been very <laughs> careful with our <laughs> I'm saying we whiteies with our religious exactly. burial grounds. We haven't actually kept a track of them because we don't hold we haven't held the reverence. Mm-hmm. And we haven't kept our connection with the land. You know, and people in the, all of that. So... Yeah, I, thank you for pointing that out because language has real impact. It and really those does. Those choice of it words, yeah. it you yeah. said that straight up. That is the implication of saying found. Yes. Yeah. And they so then that sort of after, um, when was that? Okay, last year, the Cessnam exhibit, the city before the city, was a big exhibit. Tripart. Um, there was a. Um, Musqueam's Cultural Center, the Museum of Anthropology and the City of Vancouver Museum, the Museum of Vancouver, did a, a three-part three exhibit. And there's a lot of community consultation in that. And, you know, I went into some of those and was really slaying the systems and just, like, talking to the museum curators going, you, you, not you personally, but your organization – needs to be accountable for practices and things that has, have happened. The, the mu- there was so many excavations at Sasnam and so many people removed that there wasn't enough room to, to store people. So people were thrown in the garbage. Oh, God. <laughs> so that, that, that happened. So when we're talking to the museums, I'm like, you got, you organizations, your systems need to be responsible for the past practices that you've had this the stealing of art of artifacts which were belong to people um so they actually stopped referring to artifacts as artifacts and started referring to them as belongings because all of those things belong, belong to, to people <laughs> so that for me was a really powerful shift in shift in that language because language is is so important in how we talk about things and yeah. english is such a loaded well, language it, it represents how we think it really right? does yes and, and reflects and informs and, how we think. And all of those subconscious things that go with it. So some other harmful language is things like pristine wilderness. So when Parks Canada um, and they talk about the explorers exploring the pristine wilderness, well, that erases us from the, from here. And things like... Like you were never there in the first place. Thing, and <laughs> things, yeah. and yeah. things like seasonal villages and permanent villages. Well, those are also cultural... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Well, they're misnomers. Yes. Right? Yes. It's it's removing your ties with the land by making by putting them in an impermanent language that yeah. we would use for, you know, like we'd go camping. Yes. Or something. Yeah. That's like right. We're not yeah. connected yeah. to yeah, the yeah. land. We're yeah. just going camping. Yes, that's right. So that, <laughs> yeah. that seasonal, that whole notion of like a seasonal village is, is 
really takes away that connection to that village and connection to that land mm-hmm. and how we walked uh, walked the earth mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. so different than this capitalist mess that is killing the earth right now is yeah. we we aren't you know, when you think about about capitalism is it's this um this consumption of the land, resource, resource extraction, that the earth is there to, for the betterment yeah. of mankind, yeah. that the earth is there to, to ease, the use to, serve, to, ease, to yeah. serve and to ease our existence, yeah. as opposed to us, we're actually part of this planet. We are part of this nature, and it is not ours to consume. And things to be mindful of that. And I was at a, at a BCSTA, was it a BCSTA? No, the Columbia Institute did a conference and I was listening to someone speak about sustainable um, farming and sustainability and they were talked about being more, bringing in more indigenous perspective and they talked about how indigenous people were hunters and gatherers and my arm shoots up. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, you could please stop referring to my ancestors as hunters and gatherers? I said, because that is not an accurate description of what happened. I said, because gathering implies I'm going to take my little basket, I'm going to go for a little walk and I'm going to see what I can gather as I'm out walking about. And that is certainly not at all um, how harvesting and w- went. And so I, I asked them politely and respectfully to talk about harvesting as opposed to gathering because we knew where berries were. We maintained and we didn't take too we much and we didn't over harvest and we didn't disturb things and we cultivated growth and it was all very intentional. So it wasn't just gathering up what we could find. It was maintaining and being a part of, of that, of that system, that, um, of an ecosystem, of, an ecosystem, yeah. of the good kind of yeah. system, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the system that doesn't need slain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's informed by respect for your place within a system mm-hmm. and, and how it, sustains you and your respect sustains it and yes symbiotic yes right? and the, and this whole notion of of sustainability of um of like food right mm-hmm. is is i i get so sad when i think about how much of my traditional food source is inaccessible now mm-hmm. And for a while there, Port Metro Vancouver was running an ad and they showed this this beautiful woman walking through the grocery store, so happy that she could buy all the foods from home and from her cultural background. And every time it would come on, I'd ye- yell at my TV going, but your importing of your food is killing mine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, it and just, not even any recognition that it's food. you have food. That's right. That it, that it, and, and it's part of the land. That's right. Yeah. So there's this whole, and this whole dehumanizing of indigenous people is just, it's been so effective. And, you know, talking back again against about that um, first contact was just, that show just really showed how effective the dehumanizing of indigenous people and how mm-hmm. effective it is. Mm-hmm. You know, our, our, our food and our, our economy and our governance and our language and our women are just so not, and our men are just really not, our people are just not valued. But even an assumption that it's a homogenous culture. Yeah, well, the pan the pan Indian stuff drives yeah. me nuts too. There aren't separate languages and separate cultures yes. and separate gifts and uh, awarenesses and mm-hmm. yeah. Mm. We've got. So I mean, <laughs> yeah, and not quite enough time. No, and. I want to ask a question that I know 
is going to it's it's coming from a place where the burden is still on you for the education and mm-hmm. I want you to know that I'm I'm aware of that and yet I know that you because of the work you do probably have a few things at the tip of your tongue to offer. Sure. What would you recommend for settlers to you've oh, you've offered first contact. I've tweeted that out. Something to go to watch to to pay attention to notice the burden that is following following on those people who are in that show to educate. Like, right. What would be beautiful resources for they, for us to do our work? So Google. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You, you can all use the library. Google. Yes. <laughs> Google Internet library. For God's sake. Google it. <laughs> Google. Whose land you live on? Google. Yes. What is the history yes. here? Yeah. What's the language? That's right. What's the culture? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> but in all seriousness, though, like yeah. some actual tangible ones is there's um, uh, everyone should be familiar with the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of the Indigenous People is mm. a good place to start. Everyone should be um, very familiar with the Truth and Reconciliation's Calls to Actions in the final report. There's a book called Unsettling the Settler Within. Oh, I, I okay. haven't made it all the way through it yet, but I've heard great things about it. Mm. Another one, there's um, First Nations 101 by Linda Gray is another good resource. And taking the time to research whose land you walk on, mm-hmm. because it's somebody's and it's not yours. <laughs> even, even, <laughs> exactly. meet, even meeting the people. Yes. Right? Because we're neighbors. That's right. We should know one another. Well, you're occupiers, but that's... <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. First and foremost, yes. we are. Yes. And, and, and neighbors, yes. And we're living yes. side by side on... Yes. on well, so, the, my, so my whole thing, my... Yeah. I understand that the, the occupiers and settlers that are here now, they're not going to go anywhere. That this, this government of Canada, this government of British Columbia, isn't, isn't going to go anywhere. Mm. But it, the harm needs to stop. So it's about now this mess has been created. How do we find a way now to coexist together? And I get asked all the time, like, like what, does, what does it look like? So what does post-decolonization look like? And I'm like, we're, not, we're nowhere near having a plan of what it's going to look like when the harm is still actively happening. So the first, the first and foremost thing is, is to stop the harm. So stop stealing our children. There's more children in government care now oh, than at the height of the residential school care system. And stop silencing our voices. And, you know, it, it, and sometimes settlers need to sit down and step aside and let the Indigenous voice come through from an Indigenous person. Yeah. I was uh, really quite offended through this election cycle. There was a white man... Uh, running against me who had who had worked who tried really hard to be on it on a team with me who wanted to run run together with me uh, I, but I didn't have any intentions of I didn't want to run with any any men I wanted to run a team of strong women the age of man is over we need we need women in power uh, but he was he went out and was going to run anyhow so him and two other men ran but this one this one fellow uh, went out and actively sought all sorts of endorsements to sort of validate and show what a good white man he is. So he had the first endorsement was from an indigenous, another indigenous woman, and it was like a stab to the heart. So here he is, like, look, look at this great white man is a great ally to indigenous issues and how great he is for indigenous people. 
And I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm like, he's actively running to, to run against me and could That's potentially so cost me my, my seat. Anyhow, I'm so that was not cool. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes people just got to sit down and make room. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And thank you for coming and taking yes. some room. Yes. Thank you for bringing your voice here. I'm sorry that we have now run out of time. We're just going to have to have you come back. I sure. Was just going to say this <laughs> and take up some more yes. conversation. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Rhiannon. Um, anybody who would like to connect with Rhiannon, how would you like them to connect with you? Uh, Twitter's fine. Thanks. Find me on Twitter, and I have a public Facebook page that I think I sent you the link for that. Essential Conversations is brought to you courtesy of Luca Halix, Power Sorcerer, and Rebecca Mears, Certified Coach. Increase your awareness, expand your options, empower yourself. Luca can be reached at www.lucahalix.com. I light the fires that light a thousand more. Connect with Rebecca at catchingfire.ca. Yep, yep, yep. yep. Oh, happy, 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 happ